My name is Melissa Shazer, and I'm one of the pastors here at CPC, and we are diving into a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Like John said, if you have not yet received one of these scripture journals of Matthew, we're going to be in these for the rest, really, of the year. The sermon series is going to carry, carry us far, and it is because this is an important part of scripture. The Sermon on the Mount, John framed it as Jesus' greatest hits. If we were to take Jesus' teachings from all of the cities and towns that he went to and condense them down into a couple of chapters, these are the big lessons that he taught over and over again. These are the things that he wanted to ensure that we were left with. The Sermon on the Mount starts with what we call the Beatitudes, the blessed are statements. We started last week with blessed are the poor. By the end of the series, we're going to read things like blessed are the peacemakers, even blessed are the reviled, blessed are those who are slandered. These are not people who are typically blessed in our society. These aren't the ones who we usually lift up. These are the ones who are poor. Those are the ones who are forgotten, who are pushed aside, who often we don't even want to see. And yet in the kingdom of God, Jesus tells us that they will receive the greatest inheritance. This is a series of paradox. It's the reason we called it the upside-down kingdom. This is a kingdom that looks markedly different than the one in which we live. Today we're going to be living in a double paradox because we are looking at Matthew 5.5, which says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is a curious paradox because... There is one person in all of Scripture who is described as being the meekest in all of the earth. He was promised an inheritance of land, of earth, and yet he doesn't receive it. We are going to look at the life of Moses today, a man who was promised that he would enter a land that was good and fruitful. The meekest man in all of the earth and yet he never enters this land which he was promised. My hope is that as we study the scripture today, this idea of meekness, a word that we don't use very often, that we would come to understand it in a, in a new way. That We may even have a little bit of a new definition as we leave today of what meekness really is. I hope that we can understand that meekness is a humble and devout reliance upon the strength of God. When you hear the word meek, what do you think of? I was thinking this through this week, and a few images, a few words came to mind, but this is kind of the picture that I had. Someone who shies away, who backs away from the spotlight. Someone said the word timid, or reminded me of the Christmas carol where we have the phrase meek and mild. Someone who's mild, doesn't want attention, doesn't want spotlight. And so as I was thinking of my associations with this word meek, I started to get a little bit uncomfortable because, frankly, I I don't see myself as being an especially timid person. I've never been someone who is nervous in the spotlight or, or holds my tongue when maybe I shouldn't speak necessarily. Even looking back, I was trying to think of times when I could be described as timid or mild, and more stories than not, 
actually came to mind where I embarrassed myself because I stepped into places that I maybe just didn't need to be. <laughs> uh, when I was eight years old, actually, I went to Girl Scout camp. And I was with my friend Lauren at Girl Scout camp, and her dad decided that this would be a good opportunity to create a home video. Kind of a sweet marking moment for us going to camp. So he has Lauren, he's videotaping her. He says, what are you most excited about? What are you going to do at Girl Scout camp? Well, I see this happening, and instead of minding my own business, I decided that this is my time to shine, so I jump in to her home video and start answering her father's questions. What are you girls going to do? What are you most excited about? I start answering his questions to the point that my friend Lauren wanders away out of the back of the video. I am the only person in their home video now. <laughs> this is not the behavior of someone who is mild. That is not the behavior of someone who is timid. So as I was thinking about these definitions, I also started trying to think about leaders that perhaps Jesus had in mind who would be meek in our way of understanding meekness. And I started to struggle to think of people who we would describe as timid in Scripture, people who are supposed to follow that are especially shy. I think of Paul who marched into synagogues and in front of big crowds and declared the word of the Lord in front of thousands of people. Or Priscilla in the book of Acts, she hears a teacher who's proclaiming the gospel but he doesn't know the whole story. So she and her husband pull him aside and correct him. That's not someone who is backing away or not willing to stick their nose in to correct. Even Jesus wound up a whip made of cords and he drove the money changers out of the temple. This is not someone who is backing down. And so as I was thinking of these stories, I realized that meekness in our context in the 21st century, I think we misunderstand it a little bit. I think that there is a different, different definition that Jesus had in mind as we think about meekness. So in order to get back to that definition, we need to jump into the Old Testament. We need to look at what Scripture says about meekness. Jesus is directly quoting Psalm 37 when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He's quoting Psalm 37, which says, But the meek will inherit the earth. They will delight in abundant joy. Jesus and the psalmist know the story of Moses deeply. Jesus knew scripture backward and forward, and he would have known that Moses was the meekest person in all of scripture, and he would have known that that gave him a special, intimate, devout relationship with God. In Numbers 12, verses 3 through 8, this is how we meet Moses. It says, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, just those two. And they both came forward. Now Aaron and Miriam are both prophets. So keep that in mind as we go forward. And he said, hear my words, you two. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to them in a vision. I speak with them in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. With him I speak mouth to mouth, 
clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Meekness sets Moses apart. His willingness to be meek sets him apart even from prophets. We lift up prophets. They have a close relationship with God. God gives them special visions and dreams. And yet Moses had this intimate relationship with God. I like to think of the difference here as between receiving an email from someone and talking with them face to face. When we get an email from someone, there's still some interpreting to do. Have you ever gotten an email and you've wondered, what, what did that ellipsis mean? What did that period mean? Or they seem very excited. That's a lot of exclamation points. We have some interpreting to do when we receive an email. Just like with dreams and visions, there was some, a little bit of ambiguity that they needed to work out. Moses instead had one-on-one, face-to-face conversations with God. He got to be, he got to be able to interpret the fullness of what God was wanting to reveal to him, it actually says that he beheld the form of the Lord. If Moses was this meek, and if his meekness was powerful enough to warrant him this relationship with God, then when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, we need to pay attention. Our ears should perk up at what meekness actually means because it's telling us something about how we relate to God. Here is the paradox. Despite Moses' meekness, he was promised an inheritance of land, and yet he doesn't receive it. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth or the land. You'll hear me use those two words interchangeably. Earth and land are the same word in Greek and Hebrew, and so we have some interpreting to do there. Moses had been dependent on God from the moment that God met him. And this is what we are going to find again and again, is that Moses had a trusting relationship with God, got to behold his form, because Moses was 100% reliant on the power and strength of God. Moses' life had a very particular arc. When we first meet Moses, or when he's first called... His first calling is to rescue the Israelites out of Egypt, to take them out of slavery, and to then wander with them and lead them through the wilderness and then enter the promised land. So bear this in mind as we read Exodus 3, verses 9 and 10. This is how God first commands Moses. He says, And now, behold, Moses, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is a huge call that God is making on Moses' life. And what we can notice is that Moses does not feel confident. Moses does not feel like he is able to take on this task on his own. He does not feel able. We know this because in the following verse, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses knows that he can't do this on his own. The only reason Moses steps forward in this instance is because God says, I will be with you. Moses relies on God fully. So Moses leads them out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness, and they dwell in the wilderness for 40 years. 
And over the course of those 40 years, Moses is relying on God again after, again and again after trials, after uh, threats of starvation, after the Israelites are thirsty and have no water. The Israelites constantly ask Moses to go to God because they know that Moses has this intimate relationship with him. So Moses asks again and again for God to provide, and without fail, God provides. And yet, after 40 years of God being the source of life for the Israelites, something changes. In Numbers 20, verses 6 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moses, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water to the thirsty Israelites. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and to their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Let's pause. Who brought water out of the rock? Was it God? Was it Moses? Who did Moses think brought water out of the rock? Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Some confusion happened after 40 years in the wilderness. And because of that, we read in verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I had given them. Moses is meek, and the meek will inherit the earth. After God had provided provision after provision, blessing after blessing to the Israelites in the wilderness, on this one occasion, Moses forgot where the blessings were truly coming from. He took credit for what God was doing. And in that moment, we see Moses lose his meekness, his reliance on God. I was thinking of images of what this dependence and reliance on God looks like in our day-to-day. And a story from Anne Lamott, one of our members sent it to me. She said, I heard an old man speak once, someone who had been sober for 50 years, a very prominent doctor. He said that he had finally figured out a few years ago that his profound sense of control in the world and over his life is another addiction and a total illusion. He said that when he sees little kids sitting in the backseat of cars in those car seats that have steering wheels, with grim expressions of concentration on their faces, clearly convinced that their efforts are causing the car to do whatever it's doing, he thinks of himself and his relationship with God. God, who drives along silently, gently amused in the real driver's seat. 
We are always in the back seat. And we have these little steering wheels that make us feel like we're in control. We've got it. We can take care of ourselves. And it's nice to have God help every now and then. But in moments, we need to remember that those little steering wheels are nothing compared to God who is driving the real car. I was talking with Debbie Manning earlier this week about this concept of our dependence, and she, she said to me, getting good at things is really dangerous. <laughs> when we're in emergencies, when we feel insecure, when we feel uncertain about what we're doing or we're new at something, it is so easy, I think, for us to call on God and to say, help me. I don't know what I'm doing. I need your strength. I need your ability to step in and help me out. But over time, after years, after we get our feet underneath ourselves, and as our abilities and accomplishments start to rack up, God's involvement in our successes, in our wins, can start to feel casual. We can start to lose sight of where God is actually working and even start asking questions about where God's strength and provision stop and where our own abilities start. In 1 Corinthians 4-7, Paul wants to convict us. I think this is something that generations, over 2,000 years of people have felt. Paul reminds us, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? It is easy for us to start believing that we have earned what we have. And yet Paul reminds us again and again that what we feel like we have earned was initiated and sustained first and foremost by the God who is in the front seat, the one who is truly driving. So I want us to do something on your own We're not going to share, but think back to a a recent time when you prayed for God's help, when you asked God to provide for you, whether it was in a job interview or a test or maybe in a doctor's appointment or after a loss. Think about a time when you prayed for God's help. A lot of emotions can be tied in with these prayers. We can feel fear or excitement, uncertainty. All of these emotions go into these prayers. And so now I want you to think about a few days or a week after that event took place. After God answered your prayer, whatever that looked like, what was your posture toward God? Because I can think of a number of times where I prayed for God's strength and I prayed for him to help me. And at first, I say glory to God. God is good and provided. And it is easy for me to then start thinking, gosh, I was good at that. Gosh, I did it. That transition is a very easy one for us to make. And yet a meek posture, what Moses demonstrates for us here, is that a meek posture steps back and continually says, this is God's work in me, this is not by my own hand. Praise be to God. 
A scholar was talking about meekness, and he defined it. Dennis Cole defined it as meekness. He said it conveys an individual's devout dependence upon the Lord, a physical reliance upon the strength of God. And as I thought about that, I realized that meekness is not just asking for God to take control. It is. It's asking for God to take control. It's also giving him credit when he does. It's recognizing the places big and small in our lives where God is at work, where God initiated and is sustaining us and saying that this is all because of the power of God. I was thinking about different people who demonstrate this over and over again. One of the people who came to mind was Mother Teresa. And I know that most of us in the room probably know at least some of the work that she did while she was here on earth. She was taking people who were poor and lost and dying and giving them hope and care and Christ's love. She did amazing work, and from the beginning to the end, she attributed it, she attributed it to the strength of God, from the finances to the people to the space to everything. She gave glory to God for providing for her. And yet, I think we see an even deeper level of meekness from Mother Teresa after she passed away. Her diaries were published a few years after she died, and she had said that she didn't want them published because what they reveal is a different picture of faith than what we see when we think of Mother Teresa. They revealed that she actually lived with a deep amount of uncertainty and doubt in her faith, that she often felt isolated and distant from God. At one point, she even wrote to a friend. She said, Jesus has a very special love for you. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. I listen and do not hear. (coughs) Mother Teresa couldn't feel God in the front seat anymore. She was sitting in the back seat. She knew she was not in control. She was not grabbing on to her own little steering wheel, but she wasn't sure who was at the wheel. And yet, in those moments, when she felt distant and apart, rather than turning away from God, this was the prayer that she prayed. She said, Jesus, my own Jesus, I do not know what to say, but do with me whatever you wish for I am only thine. Jesus, Jesus, my own Jesus, I don't know what to say. Do with me what you wish. In those moments when we can't feel God driving the car, it can be unsettling. We can feel distant from God and uncertain about the roads that we're traveling down. And yet Mother Teresa gives us this example of someone who is willing to still faithfully say, I trust that you are there even in the darkness. I don't know where you are at in your faith today. I don't know if you are feeling deep intimacy with God and closeness with him. Praise God if that is where you are. If you are feeling distant from him, if you're feeling fearful or uncertain, My hope is that we can still rest in the arms of God, knowing that he is still at the wheel. This is an ongoing challenge for all of us, especially as life takes different twists and turns. And so I want to leave us with a couple of questions today. (coughs) My first question 
for us to reflect on is how do you find yourself relying on God right now? What are the places in your life where you feel the weight of your life resting on God? That you aren't carrying yourself, you're not driving yourself, but you are resting on God's control. What are the small gifts or signs in your life that God still is driving? Are there people in your life who encourage you, who tell you that God is working in their own lives so that you can see that mirrored in your own? Have you gotten small signs that God's goodness is still providing for you? And then the third one is maybe the most uncomfortable. Are there places in your life that you're taking credit for things that actually belong to God? Are there, are there places in your life where you're feeling really good about yourself, where we are feeling like we have accomplished great things, but that God is somehow getting pushed to the side, where we're losing him out of the picture, and yet he is meant to be at the forefront. Scripture tells us that the meek will inherit the earth, the land. Our hope as Christians is not a temporary hope. It does not only impact our lives here on earth, or even just after we pass away. Our hope is an eternal hope, that we will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth, a new land that is restored and renewed. Revelation 21 paints a picture of this for us, and it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the hope of those who are meek. That as we rely on God, not timidly, not shyly, but as we put our full weight of reliance upon the Lord, that we can trust that we will dwell with him, not in visions or in dreams, but that we will have an intimate one-on-one relationship with God in the new heaven and the new earth that is restored, that we will see the form of God and that he will be our God and we will be his people. So may we go forward today meekly. May we remember always that God is the one who's at the wheel. And may we trust him with the road ahead. We are firmly held by the arms of God. May we humbly rely on him. Amen.